In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday to follow Trinity Sunday, the first in this long green season that's going to carry us from now all the way till the end of November. And again, we are uh, now in Mark chapter 3, and we have seen that uh, Jesus is already right in the middle of his ministry so quickly in, in Mark's gospel. Already in the first couple of chapters, he has been baptized, he started his public ministry, he's called the disciples, and he's already entered into these uh, arguments with the Pharisees, and indeed the Pharisees have already said, we're going to destroy him. And so it's in response to that argument with the Pharisees that Jesus retreats and goes away from the crowd. We see him retreat from the crowds over and over again. We see him go across the Sea of Galilee. We see him uh, go out into the wilderness. We see him go into homes over and over again. And so he is uh, retreated into this quiet place where he can do this teaching. And he is bringing salvation to the world. But before we get to that portion, we have to remember why it is that we need salvation. We have to remember why it is that we need a Savior. It's so popular in the world today especially to say, if there is a God, he's distant, and he does not care what it is that you do and say. But we know that we have an intimate God who is... uh, desperately concerned in what we do and how we live our lives and he's calling us into righteousness and so it's important that we look at the way that the lord uh, made mankind and the way that he has planned for us to live our lives in an intimate relationship with him in this beautiful garden paradise So this is Genesis chapter 3. The Lord has made the world. He's created this beautiful garden paradise. He's placed Adam and Eve into this garden. And he's given them some simple instructions for how to live. The simple instructions basically are, be obedient to me. He's calling them into a relationship where what they do and say is based on obedience to God. They're in this uh, back and forth relationship, this give and take relationship, where they're supposed to seek the Lord in all things, and he will supply all all things. And so he teaches them obedience about what fruits to eat and not eat, and he instructs them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes, who we know to be Satan, and he asks them this simple question. He says, did God really say that? And so he's placing doubt into their minds about the true intention of God and obedience. And really this is what Satan does all the time. He doesn't say anything at first too outlandish. He first just places a seed of doubt into our minds. This is something that the modern world likes to play with. They like to play with doubt like it's a toy, questioning and considering and criticizing everything rather than practicing and focusing upon faith. This itself is a kind of a deadly flaw. But then he offers something that seems to be good. Knowledge is a good thing, isn't it? Aren't we supposed to want knowledge? Uh, Just the way the human heart was made to, to have fame. We were made to be famous, but not by the world and the tabloids, but by God the Father. We were made to have power and authority, but over our own lives, not over the lives of others. So all of these are kind of little twists, subtle changes that Satan makes to these things that are naturally supposed to be be uh, enticing and good for us. So knowledge, when it's separated from the will of God, is a very dangerous thing. We don't have to think, I hope not for too long. If you're like me, you can think of things that you knew that you wish you didn't. Things that you wish that you know how to do that you wish you didn't. 
It's very easy to see how knowledge, when it's not based in obedience to God, is a very dangerous thing. And this is what they fall into. They fall into a knowledge and an ability that separates them from the will of God. And what this does is it also separates them from the mastery that they're supposed to have over their own souls and bodies. And thereby they experience nakedness and shame. This is the shame that we all experience. Shame is always a destructive force in our lives, whereby guilt is a wonderful thing. Guilt is very good. We should all be experiencing guilt because there's something we can do about it. If I offend you, which I have offended many of you, if not all of you at one time or the other, I can apologize and say, I am sorry for what I said. If I took cookies from you, what can I do about it? I can replace the cookies. I can bake you new ones, right? I'm going to apologize and say that I shouldn't do that. Guilt is a good thing. It gets us to refocus on the will of God, and there are expedient uh, uh, avenues and mechanisms that we have in repentance to remove that. Shame, though, is a very different thing. Shame is about who it is that we are as people and uh, how it is that we experience ourselves and we can place shame onto other people. We can't place guilt onto somebody else. If you didn't take the cookies, you didn't take the cookies. I can't uh, call you a thief, but if I do call you a thief, I place shame upon you. And that's a very difficult thing to remove when people place uh, shame upon others. This kind of shame is so deadly because we experience it based on that rip, that tear that we have when we are not obedient to God. And when they turn away from obedience to God, they lose the grace, the power of God to do what's right. And when we don't have the power to do what's right, we experience that, that fundamental uh, nakedness, knowing that we don't have the power to change our hearts to change our minds. We realize I can't uh, make my mind think the way I want it to think. I can't make my desires be what I want them to be. I can't even get control over my own body many times. And when we have that kind of lack of power in our lives, we experience shame and we realize how vulnerable we are. And that vulnerability is that nakedness that Adam and Eve experienced. And typically, instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, we pick at that. We pick at it in each other. We say, you're, you're guilty, you're, you're not right, you can't do what you're supposed to do. And we pick at ourselves, right? We pick at ourselves like we do a scab or like we run over a broken tooth in our mouths until our tongues are raw. And this is what Adam and Eve did by placing those fig leaves on themselves. If you've ever seen a fig leaf, this is the last leaf in the garden that you would pick to put on your skin. Fig leaves are the worst. They're worse than sandpaper. If you look very closely to fig leaf, there are thousands of tiny little hairs, almost like thorns, that can go into the skin and can cause a terrible irritation. It's the last thing that you'd put on the most delicate part of your body, and yet that's what Adam and Eve covered themselves with. They covered themselves in this kind of condemnation where they're always picking and condemning themselves, which again is what Satan does. He constantly condemns and picks us but we're supposed to be covered with righteousness and with the goodness of God and this is where Jesus comes in to cover us in righteousness and to heal us of this disease of picking at our own shame and weakness he's going to give us healing he's going to give us strength and how does he do that he does that by making a way for the Holy Spirit he enters into the world in this profound way and he teaches us this very simple free easy to use highly transportable mode of receiving grace. That is repentance, right? We're supposed to repent and say, this is the right way. 
I had done the wrong way, and so I'm going to turn to what's right. The danger that Jesus exposes here is that the whole world is trying to tell us that good is evil and evil is good. Spend two seconds reading the newspaper or being on social media, God forbid, and you're going to see that there is a whole world industry in uh, confusing these two things, calling good evil and evil good. And Jesus says this is the sin against the Holy Spirit, and it's unforgivable. Why is that? This isn't a trap that God has for us. If we utter some kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's not forgivable. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying if you're calling evil good, you won't be able to repent. And if you can't repent, you can't get forgiveness. And so there is no forgiveness if we don't admit our wrong, if we don't admit the evil that we've done. We have to be able to say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And I desire to do what's right. As soon as we do that, we have opened our hearts and our minds to the grace and the power of God, and we will receive mercy. The only way to receive mercy in a courtroom is to say, I'm guilty of the crime committed. We can't get mercy from the judge if we haven't admitted the crime. But once we've admitted it, the Lord will open to us his mercy and his grace. And he will receive that, give that to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to do what's right. And when we do what's right, we have entered into the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying that uh, Satan has come into the house and he is bound up. He is, he is wrapped up and he has held prisoner the people of the world. And he said, the first thing that I'm doing is I'm binding Satan. I'm doing that by calling good, good and evil, evil. And when we do that, we bind Satan because that's the only power he has is to confuse us about what's good and evil. Once we've done that and we're clear on what's good, Satan is bound and now we can release the captives, those who were captive to wrongdoing. And he's saying when we do that now, we are able to receive the Holy Spirit and have the power to do what's right, thereby entering into the kingdom of God, into the family of the Most High. Jesus says, who is my mother and my brother and sisters? Did you catch that part? It's a very complex part of the gospel. What does he say? Those people that I call my mother and brothers are the people who what? Do the will of the Father. That's it. Who do His will. But we have to know what that is. We have to know what that is. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 here is telling us, if you want to know what the will of God is, if you want to know what the, the desire of God is, you've got to think about it. How do you like that? You've got to spend some time waiting on the Lord. And St. Paul opens for us two very complex ways of living. He says you can think about stuff that's going to rot and disappear, or you can think about the things that are eternal. How much time do we waste on thinking about stuff that's going to rot? Right? I think it's pretty amazing. I've got like two things that were owned by my great-great-grandparents. Right? I don't know what my great-great-grandparents' hobbies were or what things they prized because all that stuff is what? It's gone. Nobody cares about it. It's gone. But they are eternally in the Father when they are obedient to Him. So we can either waste a bunch of time thinking about stuff that in a couple of years nobody's going to care about, that will rot and destroy, or we can focus our hearts and minds upon the eternal things of God, upon His faith, 
upon his hope and upon his love. And the only way we're going to do that is if we order our lives. On our bedside tables, on the tables next to our chairs, we have to have Bibles. We have to read the Bible every day. We have to have prayer books to organize our prayers, to remember the Lord's Prayer, to remember the commandments, to remember the Psalms, to remember the things of God. We have to have a list of people that we're supposed to be praying for. Because if you're like me, you will forget. So we have to organize our hearts and our minds to be focused upon the ways of God, to be focused upon the things that are eternal. And when we do that, we recognize the goodness of God. We recognize His ways. The windows of heaven are opened. We're able to receive anew the grace of God, the power of the tree of life that was barred from us in the garden. And now we're able to have that grace and mercy flow through us. And we are able to be at rest in the Father. It rests in Him. And our lives are transformed by His power and His grace. May our lives be so transformed, our hearts and minds so keenly focused upon the will of God, that the windows of heaven in our hearts are opened wide to receive His grace and His mercy, that it may flow abundantly upon our hearts and minds, the lives of those that we love in our community and upon this world.